0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm honored to welcome to our program today, Dr. Ranu Dillon. He is affiliated with the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dillon, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Uh, Doctor, what can you say at this juncture about the situation with uh, COVID cases in your hospital, and uh, have you experienced um, a fall resurgence, or has there just been a trickle in and trickle in over the course of this summer?
1: You know, so the, um, so I, I've been working clinically in hospitals in Northern California, sort of on the periphery of the Bay Area, uh, coming close to the Central Valley. Um, in the area where I work, we had... Uh, uh, cases, uh, you know, during the surge that we saw on the East coast in April and May, actually in June, July, and going into August, we continued to have pick cases and maybe up until about, I'd say about two to three weeks ago, we continued to have actually an upsurge of cases. Now I'd say in the last two or three weeks, I just finished a stretch of several nights in a row. Uh, I work night shifts in the hospital, several nights in a row in the hospital, We've had a uh, a little bit of a downtrend, Um, but the upshot is that we've continued to have cases at a steady rate, and particularly cases uh, among vulnerable populations, essential workers, their family members. That's persisted no matter what's been happening in terms of broader uh, control of the transmission, And, and that's continued. And it's concerning because we're heading into months where we're expecting to see more cases due to other uh, uh, respiratory and flu-related uh, pathogens, in terms of uh, people coming to the hospital. So we've continued to have cases. A little bit of a downtrend in the last few weeks, but prior to that, definitely a steady surge over the summer.
0: Doctor, let me ask you this. You know, this is something that eluded so many in, in their analysis of COVID from the beginning. It, it was thought that the normal rules applied with respect to transmissibility, and it turns out people will have symptoms for weeks. Uh, they may have symptoms when they still are positive. They may have symptoms when they're no longer positive for COVID. But isn't it really the case that we don't know if you can be contagious for days or weeks while you still have the virus? And that early on, there was sort of a mythology that it's it's the first few days before you're symptomatic, if you're asymptomatic or symptomatic, uh, maybe the day or two after, and then you're no longer contagious. But that seems to be a myth at this point.
1: Yeah, I would say from having worked on controlling epidemics um, in the past, including in uh, in other countries and in other settings, in tr- uh, with respect to Ebola, Lassa fever, Zika, one of the big confounders and one of the big challenges with COVID-19 is that you can have transmission happening when people have no symptoms. Or they have symptoms that are so mild that they might not even notice until days later when they become much more symptomatic. So for example, a lot of the patients I see, when you ask them, when did your symptoms start? You know, what they'll they'll often say is, you know, I've been feeling short of breath or having a cough for the last two days. But now that I think of it, the two or three days prior, maybe I had this symptom or that symptom. But in those days when they had those very mild symptoms, they may not have even noticed them. And so this is a big challenge when it comes to transmission in particular, because what it says is that people are passing the virus on to others when they have no clue themselves that they might be infectious. And that is the fundamental challenge in controlling this, especially when you compare it to, for example, Ebola. So I worked in the Ebola response in Guinea in West Africa in 2014 to 2016. One of the things that made Ebola relatively comparatively uh easier to try to address was that people were often not symptomatic almost almost uh, exclusively they were symptomatic only when they started having symptoms fever body aches something that told them that something was not right so at that moment if there was any concern or any any sense that they might be in an area where there's transmission they could isolate themselves or take the measures themselves Uh, as well as informing public health authorities, but take the measures themselves to make sure they didn't pass virus on to somebody else. Now with COVID-19, that's, that's become a different beast because people can have no symptoms at all. People can have very mild symptoms, but even the people who are the sickest people, by the time that they realize they're sick, they may have already passed the virus on to several other people. And that's really been the challenge with trying to control this.
0: So we don't really know during what period you're, contagious when you're asymptomatic or symptomatic. But I think what I hear you saying is that it could be days. Uh there is a journalist colleague who's tweeting about her case five weeks after being diagnosed in the ER. So for those entire periods, that entire month plus, she could be contagious. Um, she asked her doctor uh who she describes as uh not only medically literate but someone who's written advanced scholarship in the field she asked him 5 weeks after the diagnosis am i still contagious and he didn't he couldn't answer one way or another
1: yeah well you know so we're learning a lot about this virus as the epidemic evolves but from the the data that's out there right now from what we can see a lot of people who are having for example, the people who do become symptomatic, a lot of the data suggests that they're, they're contagious one to two days, they start becoming contagious one to two days before the symptoms start. And in fact, they're most contagious in that period of time, one to two days before they have symptoms and the day they start having symptoms, their level of contagiousness drops off in the days thereafter. And from the day someone has symptoms, there's very little transmission that happens seven, 10 days after the onset of those symptoms. So this is why if somebody has symptoms and then they get tested and they're tested positive, once 10 days past the onset of their symptoms has passed, they're, they're very minimally, if at all, infectious. Now, there are some cases, particularly people who are very sick, like the, ones, the, the types of patients that we end up having in the ICUs, who are uh, there for prolonged periods of time, who might be more contagious, more infectious for even a longer period of time, going up to 20 days, 20 days or more. But most people who have infection are after 10 days of symptoms uh, from the start of their symptoms are no longer contagious. So the the flip side of that is that as as we're learning more and more is that a lot of people who have been infected, they can have symptoms or some version of symptoms for weeks and even months later. They may not be infectious anymore, but they're still having and experiencing some of the effects of the infection that they had earlier. And that's one of the big challenges with this virus too that we're learning more and more about. The other uh, piece I'll add to this is that when we do the testing for infection, especially the the PCR test, the one that is done when somebody presents to a hospital, the one that we've been using up until recently, even in drive-through sites, That test can detect even small fragments of genetic material that may suggest to you that you're infected, but it may actually be detecting fragments of a no longer active virus um, that reflects an infection that happened weeks earlier, where you may no longer be infectious, but the test still comes back positive. So all of these factors have kind of folded together to make it very difficult to figure out when someone is actually clear of being infectious. But like I said, the 10-day period uh, speaks to most cases and 20 days for the ones who are more severe.
0: Right. At any moment, it can become more severe. I mean, there's really an enigma wrapped in this novel virus that, you know, we we can't say with any certainty, only that it's, it's unknown and we have to basically prepare for the worst in every situation. Um, and that includes contagiousness and the potential for prolonged contagiousness, which which eliminates um, a, a lot of our ability to to mitigate um, unless we're taking very conscientious disciplined precautions. Let me ask you about your your work, doctor in the hospital. do you feel as though, Preparedness is at the highest level.
1: So I don't think we're there yet, and I and I say that for, for a couple of reasons. So first, I'd say you know for this question of um, period of contagiousness, I do think we're we have pretty good evidence uh, that 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 goes towards what I was saying earlier about you know if somebody has symptoms ten days after those symptoms have started, they're they're most likely not infectious unless they're one of the people who is who becomes much, much uh, sicker and ends up in an ICU, for example. Now, going past that, in terms of uh, what was happening on the hospital side, I think the challenge is this, you know, in in the United States, we've never dealt with anything remotely close to this. A lot of countries haven't dealt with anything remotely close to this. Um, In the United States, we certainly haven't. And I think we're still in this reactive mode of scrambling, um, especially when cases upsurge. So Uh, The, you know, I told you earlier, I finished a stretch of shifts just recently and the number of COVID cases we have or the proportion of COVID cases we have is much less at the moment. We still have every day, I probably admit one or two, if not more patients who are newly diagnosed with COVID. Going back about um, four weeks ago, or especially eight weeks ago, we were in a situation where up to 20% of our inpatient census, what I mean by inpatient census the, of all the patients in the hospital, 20% of them were COVID infected. And what it does is basically is that you're seeing all the same cases you're, you would see otherwise heart attacks, strokes, all the other illnesses that are out there. But when 20% of your hospital inpatient tally involves uh, people who are infected with COVID, what tends to happen is your resources get strained. And that's what we're seeing in, in July and August. July and August are typically months where you actually have a lull in terms of the, the flow of patients into hospitals. And so what's concerning is that once the months turn cooler and you start having flu, and it's not just flu, people keep talking about the twindemic, meaning flu and COVID together, but it's not just a twindemic. We, we, what, we, what happens in October, November onwards is you also see other respiratory viruses that cause, especially people who have underlying lung disease, To have flares that require them to be hospitalized or at least come to a hospital, and so when when that happens, you're running into situations where uh, what we're facing in July and August, where we have no spare hospital beds, you're gonna. That's a situation that doesn't happen in July and August. That's a situation that happens in January, February, when you have these other viruses. So what's going to happen when we still have, if we still have, a circulation of COVID at the level that we've had recently, plus these other pathogens? and these other conditions that flare in those months, then you're in a situation where you're going to overload capacity. And honestly, there's not been a major move to actually support the staffing and the other capacity that you need to uh, respond to that. In fact, so many hospitals, I work in a hospital that actually is linked to a hospital system that is relatively better positioned financially, yet at the same time, people are being furloughed left and right. Even hospital, uh, people who are working in the hospital, physicians, nurses, they're being furloughed left and right. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the way health financing works is that the financing is linked to, uh, is linked to elective procedures and other, other care that is not actually directly correlated to what's happening to take care of people who are sick and coming into the hospital. So the big picture is that you're running into a situation where you're already overloading some hospitals. In the winter months, we expect that to be worse. Yet at the same time, these hospitals and especially their revenue model is not exactly correlated with the types of uh, capacity that the changes that need to happen in order to respond to that surge. And that's what I, I'm worried about, and I think a lot of people are worried about as we start moving into these cooler months.
0: What needs to happen, um, either with the business model of the hospital or um by virtue of an infusion of philanthropy or support to ensure that there is backup that there's backup for the backup and that there aren't folks on furlough laid off amidst the greatest health crisis of our generation let alone maybe the United States of America and it's and it's history uh what you know it's always useful to get policy prescriptions or suggestions from someone who's on the ground level
1: Yeah. So I think the most important thing that needs to be done is taking measures that we know can work to reduce transmission. And that'll ultimately reduce the number of patients coming into hospitals. And so there's a lot of clear ideas we've now learned that can bring transmission down. So number one, we know that most transmission happens in settings that we've described as the three C's, um, which is places that are crowded, places that are indoors with people having close contact with one another and places that are going to, that are going to expose people to people in indoor settings uh, where ventilation is less adequate. So we know if we reduce those types of settings, transmission can be less. Now building upon that, we also know other measures that can bring down transmission. So another one is masks. Of course, we've talked about masks very widely in the public especially if we were able to introduce higher filtration masks, so masks that filter out uh, more efficiently particles that are coming out of people's mouths as well as what goes in, we could basically reduce transmission from that measure also. The third piece that hasn't really happened is using rapid testing, so tests that people can do ideally on themselves on a daily or every couple-day basis and basically recognize if they might be infectious and and take measures to prevent being around people where they might infect others. If if those three, te- three interventions were done, especially at any level of scale, we would see a massive drop in transmission. Those are measures that we can take any day now, is, if we put the effort behind them, and if we adopted them as strategies. Now, we're doing partial measures of all of them. We're doing some testing, though not rapid testing in the way that I'm describing. We're doing masking, but not higher filtration masks, where we're giving people masks that we know work better. And we're doing some measure of not having people crowd in public places in, in indoor settings, but we're not being systematic about really trying to say these are the types of settings that that type of uh, congregation is going to cause more transmission. But if we did take a more consistent and aggressive approach towards that, we can bring transmission down pretty abruptly and pretty substantially and I think that's really the key to solving all the other problems that we're talking about, whether economic or in terms of hospital capacity. Hospitals definitely need to do things in terms of having more staff on hand, or or being able to be flexed into roles if if there are surges. I, I, I you know especially with with hospital systems furloughing workers, like I was describing earlier, you need to have some kind of uh, governmental sort of insurance or financial support, should they need to put more workers into play. Uh, if you're having more patients than you can actually handle. There are all those types of measures that can be taken, but the biggest thing is bringing transmission down. That's the, that's the key to schools, economy, preventing surges in hospitals. And, and we know how to do that. We've learned a lot in the last several months of how to do that. Uh, we just need to actually take a concerted effort to doing that. And there's challenges to actually implementation, implementing that. Implementation is always harder than saying what to do, but uh, we definitely have clear ideas of how we can do that, and I think we just need to really figure out the implementation aspect.
0: Right. As a final question to explore, though, what within the hospital um, revealed to you incentives that ought to shift? Because the reality of the American experience with the pandemic is that there is not the discipline in those areas to mitigate, uh, to control. So, I wanted you to to analyze the incentives in the hospital system and how they can be more responsive to this climate. Knowing that um, the United States as a whole is is has not. Been able to take fully the measures you describe?
1: Yeah, so it's a big challenge because the, the problem right now, in fact, is, is that hospitals are functioning with a separate set of incentives, and the people who are focused on public health from a transmission or other standpoint are different than the people who are working in the community to reduce transmission. So the problem, and, and, and the, one of the fundamental challenges we're facing with responding to a crisis like COVID-19 in the U.S. is the fact that all of these components of what really constitutes a comprehensive health system in a country, in the United States, they are not linked. They're not linked in terms of pragmatic day-to-day operations in, in, in a direct way. But more importantly, as you suggest, they're not linked in an in, by incentives that would uh, require them to coordinate together. Now, so there's two tacks to that. So the fundamental shift that needs to happen, in, which is a bigger and more sweeping change, is that we need to start developing a, a, a national health system that integrates health care with public health. And by public health, what I'm saying is prevention and responding to epidemics such as COVID-19 that all the, the, that the different components of responding to that, when I say different components, the hospitals, the primary care and regular doctor's offices, your public health agencies that are looking at transmission in community settings, that all of them are linked together and are incentivized collectively based around keeping certain levels of disease low. Now, that's a big step that would have to happen. That's really kind of what we're talking about is fundamentally reshaping the, the nature of healthcare in the US. In the near term, the challenge is how do we operate in a way that's more efficient until we can at least get past this epidemic. And to me, that's a bigger challenge. And I think the starting point has to be, for example, at, and I think a lot of this happen, has to happen locally. So the US, in the US, the healthcare system is very fragmented. You have different hospital systems. Some have links to primary care and Uh, outpatient services. Some don't. But what you really need to have happen is, for example, in the city I work, the people working on transmission in the community really need to be aligned with the people who are responding to the patients who are being referred into the hospital. They need to to start operating as one and the same. As an example, as a very simple example, is when a patient comes into the hospital and is diagnosed with COVID-19, there should be a clear investigation of where and why they got infected. And that information should ideally be, if not collected by the people working at, on, on, from a transmission standpoint in the community, they should, that should at least be transmitted to them so then they can follow up and not just find other cases, but start understanding that, okay, maybe we're having clusters of cases in these three or four you know restaurants or these three or four workplaces because of ventilation issues or other issues. Then they can, from a public health standpoint, intervene and try to interrupt transmission even that basic level uh, sharing of information is not happening while responding to an epidemic. And I think that's gotta be the starting point. I think to, to reshape how everything works is the ideal, but that's, you know, a much bigger undertaking and obviously more complicated and difficult to do on the fly. I think as we're facing this epidemic, I think right now we need to start actually coordinating amongst one another. When I say one another hospitals with outpatient offices with your public health agencies who are trying to figure out where transmission is happening in the community and trying to engage communities about transmission so that that at least starts blending together and information learned from one setting is used to actually try to figure out how to stamp out transmission. The fundamental thing with any epidemic, same for COVID-19, same for Ebola, same for Zika, is how do you actually bring transmission down to a level where each infected person is infecting one or fewer people? Once you get it below that level, the epidemic will contract, and that really requires all of these systems as they are currently entrenched in, in U.S. healthcare working together.
0: Doctor, thank you so much for your insight today.
1: Thank you for having me, Alexander.